We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinary medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Welcome to Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. This is the place to talk about your pets and get advice with a top veterinarian from the Animal Medical Center in NYC. Hear from the leading authorities on animals and give us a call to ask your questions. Now, here's your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask the Vet on Sirius Stars XM Channel 109. I'm Dr. Ann Hohenhaus, a board-certified small animal internal medicine and oncology specialist at the Animal Medical Center in New York City. We're the largest not-for-profit animal hospital in the world, and I'm all your host for Ask the Vet this month and every month. Just a note for our new listeners today, Ask the Vet is now available as a podcast. It's developed in partnership with SiriusXM, and the podcast is available on all major platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and Pandora. At the Animal Medical Center, we keep families together by providing the absolute best care for pets so they can be home with their human family members. Don't forget, you can call us toll-free and leave a message to have your pet health questions answered on next month's Ask the Vet. I'm going to give the number now, 866-993-8267, and if you don't have a pen or pencil available, it'll be given again later on in the show. Each year, the Animal Medical Center compiles statistics that tell the story of how we deliver world-class pet care. 2020 was obviously different than any other year. So we celebrated what pets have meant to families and highlighted our AMC healthcare heroes, those who have been on the front lines since the beginning of the pandemic. We're so proud of our AMC interactive 2020 year of comprehensive care report. And we hope you'll log on to learn more about the animals we took care of and the heroes who did it. You can find that at amcny.org backslash yocc-2020. There's a lot to cover today here on Ask the Vet, so let's jump right into our trending animal story. It's time for the Internet's most talked about animal. Every year, millions of albatrosses return to the Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge in Honolulu, Hawaii, the world's largest albatross colony. These wild birds not only return to their exact same nesting site every year, but the females actually reunite with the same male mate every single year. This mating season, the world's oldest known wild bird a Laetian albatross named Wisdom hatched another chick at the ripe old age of 70. Yep, seven zero. This grandma albatross has been tracked by wildlife biologists since she was first banded in 1956 and believed that she has hatched somewhere between 30 and 35 chicks in her lifetime. Albatrosses don't normally lay eggs every year and when they do, they only lay one egg at a time. So this albatross, Wisdom, has had a very prolific career as a mother. Almost amazing as being a parent at the ripe age of 70 is the number of miles Wisdom has flown. By the time she was 60, 
Wisdom had logged two to three million miles flying back and forth every year. As a reference, that's four to six trips from the Earth to the moon and back again. Why so many miles? Well, every Alasian albatross spends their first three to five years as a fledgling at sea, never touching land for three to five years. They feed on fish and crustaceans near the ocean's surface. For more about this uh, great story, Wisdom, the 70-year-old albatross and her chick, just Google Wisdom, the albatross, and you'll see some absolutely stunning photos. And now I'd like to welcome my special guest, Dr. Heather Browser. She's a staff doctor here at the Animal Medical Center and heads up AMC's primary care service. Dr. Browser earned her Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degree from the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine and completed a rotating internship in small animal medicine across the Hudson River in Oradell. She then worked in various private practices in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and in 2008, joined AMC. She's a Long Island native who currently resides in Brooklyn with her wife, two kids, two cats, a betta fish, and a turtle. Welcome, Dr. Browser. So glad you can join me today on Ask the Vet. Thank you for having me, Dr. Honehouse. So before we talk about today's topic, which is adding a new pet to your family, I want to talk about your turtle. I just want to know how old your turtle is. Uh, so my turtle is probably in the neighborhood of about 25 or 26 years old. Um, that's how long we have had this turtle. Um, he's a yellow margined Asian box turtle uh, who was actually in, originally a, a gift for my younger sister when she was about uh, 12 years old um, and then was gifted back to me uh, I think just, just prior to, uh, to my stint in veterinary school. So he's a, a long lived turtle. It's been a, a part of the family for quite a while. So I asked that question because I happen to know that the oldest turtle that AMC took care of last year was actually a 54-year-old turtle named Tootsie. Um, so twice as old as the Browser family turtle, um, <laughs> which frequently the turtles that we take care of at AMC are older than the doctors uh, that are taking care of the turtle. And a 54-year-old turtle is older than most of the doctors here. So... Um, your turtle's got a ways to go. But an important thing in talking about picking a pet for the family is how long is that pet going to live? And those cute little turtles that are like the size of a 50 cent piece could be around for a long time. So uh, that's an important point for our listeners out there is how long do you have to take care of this pet? Um, so first, let's talk a bit about our primary care service. Talk about what kinds of patients you take care of and what your typical day looks like. Um, well, as a primary care veterinarian, we, um, we generally are taking care of puppies and kittens, dogs and cats, um, typically from uh, time of adoption or addition to the family um, till, till the end of their, end of their lives. Um, we provide wellness care, um, including vaccinations, uh, we do preventative medicine, laboratory tests, spays and neuters, um, manage chronic disease processes, um, 
And uh, on any given day, we're, we're generally seeing about uh, 10 to 12 patients per doctor. Um, and it's uh, one of the nice things I think about being a general practitioner is that um, it's pretty variable what's gonna come in the door. Um, so all your appointments are kind of different. You get a little bit of a, of a, of a taste of everything. Um, healthy animals, sick animals. Um, and uh, and it's, it's kind of nice that we're able to build a relationship with our um, clients and our patients often for a number of years um, because you're, you're dealing with uh, pets throughout their, their whole, whole lifespan, which is a, a nice part of our, our practice. Well, and I think that's a nice part of AMC too is um, on the other end of the spectrum, although I only deal with pets with certain diseases, I have fortunately, because I like the people, and unfortunately for the pets, taking care of more than one pet in a family. And it's that relationship is really um, one of the fun parts of being a veterinarian. I mean, yes, it's fun to see dogs and cats all day, but it's also fun to see people that you know and like over time. Um, so since it's springtime and people are, you know, school's almost over, summer's almost here, People might be thinking about getting a new puppy or kitten. What criteria do you tell people they should consider before bringing home a new fur family member? Um, well, I think that probably the biggest uh, consideration is that just as you were, you were speaking to the longevity of turtles, um, any new addition, um, furry or scaled, um, is going to be a commitment. So I think that people need to um, realize and remember that um, you know this this animal is going to be with you and require care for uh, their entire lifespan, um, and they will be uh, a, a time commitment, um, a financial commitment, um, and you know to having a pet. Uh, is, is wonderful, but it is also some work. Um, so I think that uh, you need to be certain that everyone in your family is kind of on the same page um, and wants to have a new addition. Um, fit factor, I think, is important when welcoming a new uh, pet into the family as well. So when part of getting a pet is picking a veterinarian, and so what do you tell people that they should look for when trying to figure out not only what pet they're getting, but then how they're going to provide medical care for that pet? Um, well, I think uh, I'm, I'm uh, a, a bit biased, I think, because I'm fortunate enough to work at the Animal Medical Center um, where, uh, I, you know, I do primary care, um, but if my patients uh, require specialty care um, or emergency care, I'm able to very easily refer them uh, to, to other services within the hospital. And I think that's just a, a benefit to um, doing private, doing general medicine in a, in a big specialty hospital. Um, I think in terms of picking a veterinary facility, I think that, um, you know, there are so many uh, great practices and great veterinarians out there um, I think that uh, find, uh, word of mouth, family, friends, um, experiences, I think can be helpful in terms of finding someone that you connect with um, uh, and trust. Um, 
I think that uh, the ability to have your pets seen um, on a, in a somewhat timely manner is important. Um, once again, not necessarily with one specific, specific veterinarian, but um, within the practice, um, having a practice that works as a team, I think is, is key and helpful. Um, you know, I think you need someone who is willing to provide uh, good communication, um, is patient with um, both the patients and their families, um, and enjoys providing client education. Um, so uh, I think all of the above are probably important criteria in choosing a vet. One thing I always, you know, when, when clients of mine get a new pet, some of my patients come from a long ways away. And then coming to AMC, although their heart tells them that's what they want to do, the practical part of them says driving an hour for the pet to get shots is not realistic for me. And so that's one of the things is to ask the question, how convenient is the facility you're choosing? And convenient could be a lot of things, meaning it has parking, um, which of course is a rarity in New York. Um, it's walkable with your Great Dane in New York, which it's really hard to get a Great Dane in a taxi. Um, you know, so I think that you know, maybe in the suburbs, there might be a practice that is hard to get to because it's got road highway access issues. So I think that's another thing too, is not only do you need to mesh with the philosophy of the practice and good care, but I think it's gotta be something that's easy for you to do so that you don't keep putting it off. Because uh, I don't wanna drive there, it's hard to drive there, or I don't wanna go because I have to take a taxi, or I don't wanna go because there's no place to park. Um, so I think, I think those, that would be what I would add to, to your more um, philosophical discussion about what kind of practice to choose. So when somebody comes to you with their brand new puppy or kitten, what's your focus of that visit? Uh, well, new puppy, new kitten visits are, are some of our longest appointments. Um, because there's a lot, a lot to go over, um, particularly with people who haven't cared for dogs and cats previously. Um, so our discussion uh, ranges uh, from anything, everything from wellness care, which is just discussing vaccinations, um, as well as preventatives, uh, diet, dental care, socialization and training, uh, grooming and handlings, spaying, neutering. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of talking and a lot of um, question answering um, about pet care in general and, and also obviously um, concerns specific to that particular animal. Um, those appointments, we're generally uh, doing their, their uh, vaccinations kind of in accordance to um, their records and what they're what they're due for um, deworming, fecal screening. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we try to focus on in our service is providing um, a, a really good experience. I mean, hopefully to the client, but particularly to the animal, um, because this is a you know this is their first introduction to uh, a vet practice, and we want them to have a good experience. You know, it's it's. Um, 
And so it was really rewarding to see your patients come in and be happy to come to the vet's office. Um, so we really try to focus on um, making their visit uh, a positive one. The, what would you say surprises pet owners the most that you tell them they should do with their new puppy or kitten? What do they say? Oh, I never thought of that to you. Um, I guess I would probably say uh, brushing their teeth. Um, I think a lot of people are surprised that um, prophylactic dental care at home is um, a recommendation uh, because I think in times past, uh, it wasn't something that was routinely done with uh, companion animals. So um, particularly cat owners, <laughs> not every cat is going to tolerate uh, toothbrushing at home, but uh, if you start working with kittens, um, you know, when they're newly adopted, uh, some of them will indeed tolerate it. So I think that's, that's often a surprise to people. When I have foster kittens, I always open their mouth and look at their little teeth every day because hopefully then when somebody someday needs to give that kitten a pill, um, they will say, oh, yeah, I have my mouth open before. It's not so bad kind of thing. So, uh, and, and I trim, kitten toenails grow really fast. And so I'm trimming nails at least once a week, trying to get them used to having their nails trimmed and their mouth opened so that they will be cooperative um, as adult patients. I don't really know if that ever makes a difference or not, but I try anyway. Um, what are the most important, so that was the gee whiz thing that people don't expect. What's the most important piece of advice you give your puppy and kitten patients? Uh, gosh, there's a lot that we go over. I, I honestly think that probably the most um, important thing that we discuss is socialization. Um, for puppies and kittens, um, particularly puppies that we know are going to ultimately be out and about in the world, um, uh, both puppies and kittens, dogs and cats are going to require just what kind of just what you were talking about, handling and um, uh, medical care, grooming, um, basic examinations, etc. during their lifetime. So the more you get them used to uh, when they're babies, I do think that it, it pays off in the long run. Um, socialization and handling for, for, for dogs, particularly in Manhattan, um, is really important. Um, I find that um, if you can get these guys started off on the right foot, I think you, you um, end up with happier, better adjusted uh, dogs um, and, in turn, families who, who uh, care for these dogs. So pandemic aside, what, what do you tell people to do to socialize their puppies? And how old are they when you tell them to do that? Um, well, I think um, in terms of socializing with people, um, I, that can happen right off the bat. You know, I think that um, uh, having people interact with puppies and kittens, uh, you know, uh, children, adults, men with beards and hats and umbrellas and all sorts of things. If you expose um, these little critters to uh, people that they otherwise might not see on a regular basis, I think they're, they're less tentative and less, less frightened by them. 
Um, in terms of going out and about on city streets, uh, the recommendation is not to take uh, puppies out until they're completely vaccinated, which is going to be generally after the 16 week mark. Um, and that is basically to prevent uh, infectious disease concerns. Um, you know, I, I will generally tell people that because of the importance of socialization, if they have friends or family with dogs that they know are um, current on their vaccinations, um, they know their lifestyle and they, they uh, um, are, are comfortable, those are the dogs that um, potentially a puppy may be able to interact with prior to being fully vaccinated. Um, but that's a big public service announcement is that puppies shouldn't be out on, on city streets until they're fully vaccinated or There's just in, too many dogs or in dog parks. Yes. Uh, yeah. Anywhere. Yeah. Any public space, basically where there are dogs, um, that you do not know, um, they, they shouldn't be out there. Um, that's why when I have my foster kittens, they have a pen right outside the kitchen door. So they hear the dishwasher and the food processor and all those electric gadgets, the paper shredder, so that when they go to somebody's house, they're not freaked out by Mr. Vacuum Cleaner, who usually is the absolute biggest enemy of the cat on the planet is Mr. Vacuum. Uh, they really hate Mr. Vacuum. I don't know how to get them to love Mr. Vacuum, but at least they don't freak when they say Mr. Vacuum. Um, so do you have a recommendation? Today I had a question. I got a client with a new Havanese puppy, um, and she wanted to know how many hours of exercise a day she needed to arrange for Igor with the dog walker. So what would you tell her? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that, uh, I think there's a lot of variability in that. I think that there, some breeds are, are a bit uh, more active and require more uh, exercise than others. Um, I would probably let the puppy take the lead um, and uh, arrange for walks or play. And when the puppy is slowing down or getting tired, then, then take a break. I think it's, a little bit difficult to say you need X number of minutes or X number of hours, um, you know, every day. Um, but I suspect, you know, perhaps a Labrador or a Golden Retriever puppy uh, may end up needing more exercise than a pug, per se. Uh, I, yeah, I think that's right. I think that the gauge, too, is when the puppy's exhausted and lays down and doesn't want to walk, it needs to go home. But also, if the puppy is crazy at home and you know has destroyed five pairs of shoes and the legs on the chairs that would suggest it probably needs more exercise so that it it doesn't need to um uh find destructive things to do um so kitten season is almost upon us i'm picking up a couple fur potatoes this afternoon and so that means that amc's kitten cam will be back on facebook um, as soon as I get out all the cords and get it set up. So for our listeners, check AMC's Facebook page for the kitten cam announcement. So, but I want you to talk a little bit about why is there a kitten season and why is there not a puppy season? Um, well, uh, that is just because the way cats are, are built, um, they tend to be uh, somewhat seasonal and, and induced ovulators. So 
uh, springtime tends to be when the, the uh, all the, well, I guess early spring tends to be when you have all the, the uh, female cats becoming pregnant and early spring is when you tend to have all of the kittens being born. Oh, they're so cute. Oh, I can't wait to pick up Aria and Allegro. Um, you brought up spay and neutering in a previous answer. Uh, what's the optimal time? Uh, you know, it, it, um, it used to be that uh, the recommendation was at least uh, in my training, the blanket statement was six months. I think like in all areas of medicine, um, we continue to learn and studies uh, continue. And, you know, I think that I don't know that there is necessary and often time for every cat and every dog. I think that cats are a little bit easier in that um, the recommendation is still generally about five or six months of age um, for spaying and neutering cats. Um, in terms of dogs, there is a bit of uh, discussion as to when when the optimal time is and I think it's somewhat um, size dependent breed dependent um, and there like I said there continue to be studies um, to kind of help us figure out what is the best time the six month mark was used um, historically because we were trying to catch dogs before they went into heat um, because if you spay a dog prior to their heat cycle um, it's protective against breast cancer in dogs. Um, and we knew that to be fact. So six months was the six months was the rule. Um, I think a lot of uh, veterinarians, including myself, still adhere to that for um, smaller breed dogs. Um, but there is some thinking now that um, perhaps there is a, a benefit in delaying spay neuter for some larger or giant breed dogs with certain um, uh, predispositions toward orthopedic issues or other illnesses. So uh, in some circumstances, um, delaying spay and neuter until after a heat cycle, um, uh, well, not, not neutering, but delaying spaying until after a heat cycle um, may be recommended. So I think that it needs to be discussed um, on a case-by-case -case basis um, because I think there are multiple factors that play into um, timing of spay and neuter these days. Oh, I like that line. I think I'll use that somewhere. So with that great line about discuss with your veterinarian whether your pet needs to be spayed or neutered, I'm going to say thank you so much to Dr. Browser for joining me today on Ask the Vet. And just to remind our listeners, you can call us toll-free and leave a message to have your pet health questions answered on next month's Ask the Vet. And here's the phone number, 866 993 8267. Leave us a message and we'll play your question and I'll give an answer next month. And coming up after the break, we have news from the animal world and I'll answer listener questions. We have a quartet of Frenchie questions today. We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM Stars. And now let's take a quick look at what's making news in the animal world. It's time for Animal Headlines, the biggest animal news from across the world. Susie Esterhaus, award-winning wildlife photographer, just published a new book, New on Earth, Baby Animals in the Wild. This stunning collection of her life's work in photography 
showcases baby animals and their families throughout the world, with many of the species in these books coming from the endangered species list. The images will absolutely tug at your heartstring. It's rare to see such intimate moments of baby animals and their parents in the wild because moms with newborns are often on high alert and capturing glimpses into their lives requires earning their trust and that could take months. To see these fabulous images, just Google new on earth baby animals in the wild. Just a reminder to our listeners out there, this is a time of year when there are many babies out in the wild in nature. And as much as you would like to peek in on them, the mamas are very protective. So be sure to give them space and check out AMC's webpage for tips on what to do if you find injured wildlife this spring season. Here's another pandemic plus. Yahoo Finance reported that a recent survey conducted by the Halifax, a British insurance company, found people are three times more likely to have insurance for their pet's health as they are to have critical illness coverage for themselves. The survey suggests the volume of new pets acquired during the coronavirus lockdowns may have encouraged people to purchase protection for their animal's health. If you're thinking about getting pet health insurance for your furry family member, be sure to check out AMC's Usdan Institute Pet Health Library. It has a wealth of information about how to navigate finding the right insurance for your pet's needs. And there's also a video entitled The Cost of Pet Ownership, and that will give you tips about pet insurance as well as managing your pet's finances. And finally, it's a well-known fact that people who care for sick relatives can suffer from what's called caregiver burden. And that has an impact on the caregiver's health and well-being. A recent article in New York Magazine talks about a clinical study to document pet caregiver burden, meaning people who have sick pets and the emotional and physical burden that they experience taking care of that sick pet. The study was conducted by neuropsychologist Mary Beth Spitznagel at Kent State University, and she looks at the burden of caregivers of pets just like her previous research has looked at the health, the caregiver burden of sick humans. Spitznagel got the idea for the study while she was taking care of her own dog, Aloe, who had been diagnosed with bladder cancer. And during the course of caring for Aloe, she realized that the greater level of burden and the higher level of stress gave her depressive symptoms and a lower quality of life and that this was actually similar to people caring for sick relatives. And this issue has probably been overlooked and minimized. Today, veterinary social workers like AMC's staff clinical social worker, Judith Harbour, have been aware of the struggles of pet parents who are dealing with a sick pet. If you want to read more about this topic, just Google the invisible emotional burden of caring for a sick pet. And if caregiver burden is getting to you, there are absolutely resources out there to help you. All you need to do is search pet loss support groups and you can find someone to provide you the help you need when your pet is really sick. And now we'll take listener calls. Our first call today 
comes from someone who's thinking about getting a French Bulldog. Hi, I'm calling for Ask the Vet. I have a question. I'm thinking about getting a dog, and uh, I was thinking about maybe getting a French Bulldog or a Golden Retriever, and I was wondering what you recommend. I'm really interested in getting a dog that um, is a healthy breed. It can live a long time, sort of low-maintenance in terms of health issues. So, um, yeah, I would really appreciate your thoughts. Thanks. So thanks for that call. I would say that there is no breed that is healthier than others. They're all going to have their issues. Smaller pets, smaller dogs tend to live longer than bigger dogs. So a Jack Russell Terrier tends to live longer than an Irish Wolfhound. So that's kind of a general rule of thumb. What I suggest this listener do is go to the American Kennel Club's website, which is akc.org. And they have a terrific online tool that asks a series of questions about you and your family. And then when you answer those questions, it points you towards a specific breed of dog. I'm not sure that everybody out there really wants a purebred dog. But what I think these questions do is make you think about how this dog is going to fit into your life. And those are really important questions for you to answer before you decide on what kind of dog you're going to look for at the pet store or the pound. So again, akc.org is where this online find a dog for my family tool exists. Now, our next question is also about a white Frenchie with a limp. Hi, I had a question for the doctor. Um, I have a little white Frenchie that seems to have um, a limp um, on his shoulder, um, or he injured his shoulder and he has a limp. So I was seeing if it's something I should just watch for a day or two or just take him straight to the vet. Thank you. So limping is really, really common in dogs, and most of it gets better without a lot of intervention. So if your dog is fine and all of a sudden starts limping, the first thing to do is rest the dog. Avoid stairs, no playing fetch, no long walks. And if you rest the dog for a couple of days and everything is back on track, I don't think it's necessary to see the veterinarian. But after a day or so that limp is not improving or is actually getting worse, then that's when this Frenchie owner needs to see the veterinarian. But remember, a limping dog should rest. If you twist your ankle, you don't go back out there and play a game of ball in the backyard and neither should your dog. So good luck to the owner of Frenchie number two. Frenchie number three has a pooping problem. Hi, I just had a question regarding my French bulldog who consistently drops poop balls throughout the day or while he's sleeping and see if he has any ideas. Thanks. And Jake from Canada has got Frenchie number four. Hi, I'm Jake, and I'm from Canada, Ontario, or Ontario, Canada, and uh, uh, I have a question about my French Bulldog. Uh, he's eight years old. Um, he's been potty trained. He's always gone to the very back of our yard into the bush and done his business in the, in the bush. But recently, uh, come the cold weather in Canada here, uh, Stitch, he, he likes to poop inside, and um, 
We're not sure if it's because he doesn't like the cold, but he goes outside for 30 minutes and, and then he comes inside and he decides to take a poop on the floor. Um, and, you know, it slips out and in his bed and in the truck on the ride. So uh, we're really curious on, on why, why our dog keeps defecating in our house nonstop. And he's never done it for eight years, but now he does. Thanks. So I'm worried about two things in this pair of pooping Frenchies. Um, the first is there's a, a disorder in Frenchies that's a mouthful. It's called enteroinvasive E. coli, causing granulomatous colitis. And what that means is that these Frenchies have an invasive infection with a bacteria called E. coli, and it causes inflammation of the colon, and the dogs will poop frequently, have blood in their stool, uh, and in general be uncomfortable. And it's common in Frenchies and other dogs shaped similar to Frenchies like uh, Mastiffs. The other problem that Frenchies have is part of the reason they're kind of cute is that their backbone is not formed normally. And this abnormal backbone can result in a neurologic condition that affects the dog's ability to control pooping. And it's related to the abnormal formation of the bones in their back. So these Frenchies could also have this neurologic disorder caused by the abnormal backbone, and they can't control pooping because their nerves that come off the spinal cord are injured by this abnormal backbone. So in either case, both of these Frenchies need to go to the veterinarian and be evaluated for these kinds of diseases so that we can get the Frenchies back on track and pooping where they should be. So good luck to both these Frenchie owners, um, and I hope the dogs are pooping better very shortly. Our next caller is Michelle from Memphis. Hi, my name is Michelle, and I'm calling from Memphis. We adopted a dog during COVID, and the poor little guy is terrified of everything. We've made a lot of progress with him, but I'm wondering how to help him along in meeting other dogs, since no one's allowed to gather. I appreciate your help. Thank you. So this is a really tough situation, because as Dr. Browser talked about in the earlier segment of Ask the Vet, um, there is a socialization window for dogs where they are more accepting of dogs who are um, new to them. And so it sounds like this little guy is older um, and it's going to be a little bit harder to convince him um, that he wants to be friends with other dogs. So what I would do first is find nice dogs that belong to healthy friends and family and I would introduce this dog to these friendly dogs only for a short period of time, maybe five or 10 minutes, and be sure that Michelle's dog is getting lots of treats. So meeting other dogs becomes a very positive experience. And then you want dogs that are not too crazy and exuberant, like a puppy would be a bad choice for this dog because puppies just have no manners. And so you want a nice mannerly dog who's not going to tackle the terrified dog because that'll only make things worse. And once the terrified dog is a 
acquainted with these dogs who are teaching him how to socialize with other dogs, then you can extend the time that they interact. I think taking this dog to a dog park would be a really bad idea where there might be dogs that you don't know that might jump on him or frighten him in some way. And so always short exposures with lots of treats and friendly dogs. And I think that with a lot of perseverance, you'll be able to get this guy not to be quite so scared of other dogs. Good luck, Michelle. Let us know how your little guy is doing. And our next call is a lab with a lipoma. I have a Labrador retriever, and he's nine years old, and he has several large uh, fatty lipomas on him. And um, my veterinarian will not do surgery because of the location. One's on his chest and two are on his side. But they're getting pretty big. He is nine years old. He's a healthy dog, so I'm not worried about putting him under anesthesia. But could the doctor explain why my doctor wouldn't take those fatty lipomas off of him? Thank you. So I can't really comment on another doctor's thought processes and medical recommendations, but I'll make some general comments. Lipomas are benign fatty tumors, and because they're benign, they only pose a risk to the dog if they're making it difficult for the dog to walk or making the dog uncomfortable in some way, which it doesn't sound like this Labrador is uncomfortable. Big masses are hard to remove successfully, and so maybe what the caller needs to do is to find a board-certified veterinary surgeon near her and seek the opinion of that specialist. She can find a board-certified veterinary specialist by going to the website www.acvs, that's American College of Veterinary Surgeons, .org. And on that webpage, there'll be a search function that says, find a surgeon near me. And then she can find someone who might be able to help her with her question about, should these lipomas be removed, or is it okay to leave them in place? One of AMC's most popular blogs ever is a blog about lipomas, and that blog can be found on AMC's website, which is amcny.org. Good luck to the lab with the lipoma. And our final caller of the day is Gary from Detroit. Yeah, my name is Gary from um, Detroit, Michigan. I have a question concerning my Great Pyrenees. Um, when you pet him, uh, he's got a dander problem. A lot of dander comes off of him besides, of course, he's shedding. Uh, just want to find out if there's something that I can add to his food. Right now he's taking... Uh, dry dog food, I think it's called call of the wild salmon uh, flavor. Uh, and I'm just wondering if there's anything additional I could do. Thank you. So for those listeners who don't know what a Great Pyrenees is, it's a great big white hairy dog. So I can imagine that Gary's got a big hair and dander problem because these dogs sometimes weigh towards 125 pounds. First of all, bathing and brushing uh, and, uh, and brushing every day and brushing before you bathe will help to keep the shedding and the dander under control. Oftentimes, uh, fish-based diets like salmon are used in dogs with skin disease because they contain a lot of omega-3 fatty acids, which help to improve the health of the coat and skin. 
So Gary, you might want to think about adding some additional omega fatty acids to the great Pyrenees diet. Even though Call of the Wild is a great food, um, sometimes a particular food just doesn't work that well in a particular dog. And so another thing to think about is to think about talking to your veterinarian and finding out if there is a different diet that would be good for the Great Pyrenees to see if maybe this is a diet that's just not perfect for this particular dog. I'm not saying Call of the Wild is bad. It, it's just a mismatch between Gary's Great Pyrenees and the particular diet he's feeding. And lastly, if all this work doesn't help to make his dog better, then Gary might uh, try and find a board-certified veterinary dermatologist near him. And again, the same way to find one is similar to that in finding a surgeon. You look for uh, the American College of Veterinary Dermatology's website, and then go to the search function, find a dermatologist near me. And when we come back, we'll have news from the Animal Medical Center. We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM Stars. Hi, and welcome back to Ask the Vet on Sirius XM Stars 109. Just a reminder, if you want to have us answer your pet questions next month, you can leave us a toll-free voicemail, and I'll give you that number right now, 866 993 8267, and I'll answer your questions next month on Ask the Vet. The Animal Medical Center was founded in 1910 as a temporary clinic to help animals whose owners could not afford medical care. And today, the AMC has over 100 veterinarians working in 20 specialties and services to manage 56,000 patients a year. On a daily basis, that's 160 pets that come through our door each day. The doors of the Animal Medical Center have remained open for people and their pets through some of New York City's most challenging times, the 1918 flu pandemic, the tragedy of 9-11, Hurricane Sandy, and the COVID-19 pandemic. And through it all, AMC has remained true to its core mission and has provided the highest level of compassionate care, advanced veterinary medicine through clinical research, and trained the next generation of veterinary leaders. I'd like to talk a little bit today about the AMC's Usdan Institute for Animal Health Education. It's the leading provider of pet health information, and the Institute presents monthly events uh, virtually since the pandemic is going on. We also distribute a weekly newsletter that contains timely and relevant pet health information and we have an online user-friendly pet health library vetted by the experts at AMC. All AMC used and events are posted online after the event, so if it doesn't fit into your schedule, you can watch them on your own schedule. Some of the topics that have been covered in the past include weight management, caring for a senior pet, dental disease, recognizing a medical emergency, canine conditioning exercises, and lumps and bumps on your pet. We know many folks are starting to make travel plans as things start to loosen up after the pandemic. And when they travel, they expect to bring along their furry four-legged family member. So we hope you'll be able to join us for the next online news Dan event, Summer and Travel Safety. 
It will be on Thursday, May 13th at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And the Animal Medical Center's Dr. Carly Fox will discuss important information to consider when traveling with pets, along with safety tips so you won't have to squeeze a trip to the veterinary ER into your vacation plans. Registration is required, but free and open to everyone. So please visit www.amcny.org backslash events. If you want to sign up for our newsletter or log into the Pet Health Library, check out AMC's USDAN Institute for Animal Health Education to learn about upcoming events. Simply go to AMC's webpage and click on USDAN events. Just a reminder, you can call us toll free and leave a message to have your pet questions answered on next month's show. That number is 866-993-8267. And now I'd like to thank my special guest, Dr. Heather Browsa, for being on the show today and giving us such great information about adding new puppies and kittens to your family. I'd like to thank all the listeners with great questions today, especially the Frenchie Quartet. And I wanna give a special thank you to all of you who have downloaded our Ask the Vet podcast wherever you download your podcasts. And one last time, you can have your questions answered on next month's Ask the Vet. That number is 866-993-8267. Don't forget to check out AMC on social media. On Facebook, it's the Animal Medical Center. On Twitter and Instagram, AMCNY. I'll be back next month for the next Ask the Vet on Sirius Stars Channel 109. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in.